Romans chapter 8. Um, we have been in Romans for a long time. I don't know how many months, but we spent a couple of months just in chapters 6 and 7. Uh, but we get to Romans 8 smack dab in the middle of the book, and it's kind of smack dab in the middle of, if you would, a sermon that Paul is giving to the Roman church, uh, definitely intended to be shared. He starts in those first three chapters talking about the basic human need. It's a little different than the normal gospel presentation. He doesn't start by saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He says, no, what you see in the world is the wrath of God being poured out on all humanity who have purposefully, purposely removed themselves from the truth of God and have gone and followed false gods made in their own image. Uh, he goes through those first three chapters explaining that really no one is no one is free. No one can claim ignorance. No one is free. In fact, all, he says, are uh, found short of the glory of God. But then in chapter 3, he brings this beautiful promise of justification. In verse 24, they are justified by his grace. And in fact, he's saying there's, there's really no other way uh, that a human being will be made right before God except by being justified by his grace. And then in chapter 4, he gives us the illustration of Abraham. So this isn't something new. This is how God has operated with his people. He has always, always saved people by faith, by what they believe. And so he uses the example of Abraham. And then in chapters 5 to 8, where we are now, he is, uh, he is unfolding the life of a Christian. When someone has been justified, what does that life look like? And in chapter 5, we talked about this huge bundle that comes to us when we are received by Christ into his bosom, when, he, when we are saved and we are justified, all of these things become ours in chapter 5. And in chapter 6 and 7, these last few months, we talked about the place of the law of God. What do we do now with the law of God? And, and he has gone through a question and answer of the law of God. Uh, is the law good for this? Do we not know? Is the law sinful? Uh, I'm not going to recount all of that for you. But I want you to know that that's where we are so that when we get to this verse 1 that starts with the word therefore, which every good Bible reader knows, what do you do when you come to the word therefore? You see what it's there for. All right? You see what it's there for. When you come to the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it there for? It is a summary of all those seven chapters, and especially chapter 7. And we, we talked about chapter 7. I said, you've got to wrestle through this as a believer because it is our life now. We wrestle with who we're called to be, who we are in Christ, and then who we act out of the flesh at times. And so he comes to that in verse 24 and 25, where he is saying, oh, I know the good that I want to do, and now the Spirit of God is living in me, and I'm able to do things. I'm able to do the right things in the right way for the right reason. And yet I still find at times, I want to do this, and I end up doing this. And he gets in this beautiful, beautiful personal confession. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Verse 24 and 25. Oh, who will rescue me, he says. Thanks be to God. And so he's taken us through that. And you can see it as a, as a body of a church and as an individual. It's the life of a believer. Hey, we, we, we come to grips with the fact that we can't save ourselves. As Bo said, we, we can't save ourselves by the law. We come to grips with that. We, 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 we entrust, we surrender ourselves 
to God and his righteousness. We receive as a free gift by faith what Christ has won for us. And then we use the law of God in the right way, not to make us proud or haughty, or as Bo said so eloquently, not to keep us in the faith, but we use it as the guide. Though we might know more about God and, and who he is like and what he loves in us, but also what we, we will become. And so that's seven. He is wrestling with that. And then he comes to this beautiful verse, uh, one of chapter eight. Uh, so let's stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. In chapter 7, law was mentioned 31 times. What do we do with the law? 31 times in chapter 7. It's important. The law is important. Psalm 1 How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. What? But he delights in the law of God. There is a place for it. Uh, The Spirit is only mentioned once in chapter 7. And then we get to chapter 8. In these first 17 verses, it is mentioned 19 times by name, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. In fact, you could look at 7 and 8, and you could say that in 7 he's talking about the weaknesses of the law. Or indwelling sin, right? Uh, This sin that indwells in me, it's not me, it's the sin that indwells in me. You can take that and you can compare it in chapter 8 to the indwelling spirit. We talked about that in that sense that old-timey, these two dogs are fighting. There's an indwelling sin uh, that had rule over me, that was my slave master, that I was used to. It's a way of dealing with people and things and self. Uh, But now the spirit of life has been granted to me. And so we'll see that in chapter 8, the indwelling power of the Spirit. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on Romans, when he gets to chapter 8, he says this is a chapter that is a series of arguments, all in support of one point, the absolute security of the children of God. And I couldn't sum it up any better than that. The absolute security of the children of God of God. I titled the sermon, Walk in the Walk. You know the phrase that comes before that, don't you? Hey, 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 bud, right? Guy wants to date my daughter. Yeah, he shows up at church. Yeah, he's like Eddie Haskell, right? We all know Eddie Haskell. Hello, Mrs. Kuiper. My, you look wonderful today. Hello, Reverend Kuiper. That was such a great message last week. Right. That boy can talk the talk. But can he walk the walk, right? We know that term, right? It's easy to say things, but can he do it? So Christianity is described often throughout as a walk, as a path, 
right? The first Christians were called, they were called members of the way, right? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the gate, right? There is a sense of walk, movement, and life as a Christian. And so that's what he has done in 5, 6, and 7, and now in 8. What does the walk look like? And he is going to compare that to walking in the Spirit. Again, we're going to have weeks to unpack this. Walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. Living by the Spirit and living by the flesh. My dad used to have this saying. Uh, He's long past, and Mom's memory is long past, so I think I'm free now to share these stories. Mom would get all upset about something. He would say, hey, boys, Mom just dug herself up from the grave again. <laughs> and he was like, Mom's living in the flesh. You better walk that line because there's not a lot of grace today with Mom. All right? And if Mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. All right? And, and that's this walk. It's not um, a 12-step. Not... 12 steps are great, it, but it's, it's not uh, you do this, 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 and, and then you know, you're on step 11 or 12 right now, and then as soon as you get there, you'll be completely glorified and sinless. It is a path. It is a path towards glorification. That's a theological term. What it means is it is a path towards the creature glorified. That's how Francis Schaeffer calls it. I love it. The creature. You and I created beings glorified, made into what he designed for us. The C.S. Lewis says when we see that creature glorified, we would be tempted to worship that creature. That is the path, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is called the walk by the Spirit. God chipping away at all manner of fleshly thoughts and ways and systems and values, chipping away at all of those as we walk in the power of His Spirit. It is not an explosion, although Paul calls it a race sometimes. It has purpose. It has movement. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the term walk, then it's a description of the totality of life. Not merely practice, but of thought, desire, and all else. Paul in Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Isaiah 9, those who were walking in darkness have seen a light. It is a walk, it is a path of certainty and uncertainty. It has a certain direction, and it is in the certainty that we as Christians deal with the uncertainty. Those of you who know me, I've talked about it often, that the Christian life is not a canal It is not something that we power through a bunch of dead water and it's up to us to do it all right and we'll get there. No, it is a river, right? We're not sure what's around the next bend, but it is certain that God is with us and He is taking us to a place. In a relationship, any relationship you have that is meaningful with another human being and especially with the Lord our God, it is important. Uh, that we know the walk. We know uh, what is important to that person. Uh, what direction is their life headed towards and who or what directs them. And so we'll see. He has talking about two paths and two walks. And I want to make sure you understand this. He is speaking to Christians. Right? We, don't, we don't cut Romans 8.1. And I, the reason I don't put those things sometimes on my car or in my yard 
is because there's so much context that's gone before that. I do not want someone who has not grasped the nature of their sin and the wonder of their Savior to read verse 8, chapter 1, and say, whoopee, there's no condemnation for me now. When they don't understand, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? What does this union with Christ look like? How does it happen? Right? We, we don't want to take all of that out of context. But the relationship with a person, it's so important that we understand the walk and where they are going. And so Paul is saying, Christian, uh, you, you will still wrestle with the wrong path. Right? Chapter 3, the, 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 chapter 6, the, the wages of sin is death. Right? It, it, it's, it's death. And he's speaking to Christians. Um, so the sermon in the sentence this morning is that the Christian's walk, it is secured by a powerful declaration and fueled by the greatest of expectations. Uh, a powerful declaration. He clearly explains it in verses 2 and 3, and he leaves us at verse 4 with this great expectation. First, uh, we walk under this powerful declaration in verse 1. All right, now, when uh, I would drop off a child at school or at a new place, uh, if, if Tammy wasn't bawling or I wasn't bawling, if they were bawling, what would we declare to them? Right? We would declare to our, our child or our loved one, I love you. Now, when we say those words, it, it means something based upon the relationship that we have. Right? I mean, I, you know, you've all gone through this. You know? You're, should I tell this person I love them? Well, I like them a lot. Um, what, 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 is, what does that mean? I think I told you. Now, Tammy's in the nursery. First time I told her I loved her, she hung up on me. <laughs> and then I got a nice long letter. Like, what does that mean? You said that. What does that mean? Someone else has said that to me before. And they really, really hurt me. What does that mean? You have declared your love for me. Brothers and sisters, there, there may be no greater verse in all of Scripture to hear the declaration of God the Father. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I can't reiterate all of that union with Christ. If that's a hard concept for you, go back to chapter 5. Uh, everything a Christian has comes by being joined to Christ. When we come to the sacrament and we eat the flesh and we drink the blood, we are proclaiming to the world... All that I have and all that I am is because I've been joined to Christ. I belong to Him. He is mine. I am His. And you'll see it twice in this text. Twice in this text, again, He just says it in Christ Jesus. He always wants to make sure that all these blessings, declarations, everything that we have and receive and will become, it's all because we are in Christ Jesus. This declaration is not a hope or a wish. It's not something you, old Christian, work towards. I hear people say that. Maybe on that day when I, when I meet my Savior, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and I will be accepted. Oh, brothers and sisters, we've got to wipe that out of our thinking as if it's something I've done or I've earned and it's going to be more than what Christ has done. He declares it. He says it. This is the God who speaks things into existence, who says to darkness and void, let there be light. Creates things by the power of his word. He says to you, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. 
Now, when I put a sermon together, a lot of ministers, we look at how are we going to get this sermon together. There's one hermeneutical principle that I go towards, and, and it's, we call it the fallen condition focus. It wasn't something I created. And I don't know if Dr. Rayburn created it, you know, 100 years ago, or Brian Chappell found it. I, but, but we look, in some sense, as, as we're reading the text, and we're thinking about the people that the Lord has entrusted for us to shepherd and lead through his word. We look at that text, and we say... What fallen condition? Is there something about God that's hard for me to believe? Is there some sin pattern that it's calling me to confess and repent? And, and so we often start with that, and, and sometimes it's easy. Like in this passage, it's easy. Why does he say, therefore, there's no condemnation? Because after chapter 7, we feel condemnation. Because the believer, and I've walked with Christ as long as I can remember, and there are those times like, oh, Lord, how can you still love me how can I still declare these benefits as your child when every aspect of my life shows I'm doubting it when there are even moments of willful going against what you have told me is right and you've proved to me is right by by life word experience I must be condemned how beautiful that our God knows us that well how beautiful that the Apostle Paul has switched from you and y'all and they and them to us and me and I. He says it in the first person. I have been rescued. I have been washed. We have been cleansed. This declaration, oh, my word, here, here it is one more time. There's therefore now. Oftentimes when I'm serving communion, I would use this verse from a person I didn't know. Now, today we'll have to rush through it, which is okay. But I often use that verse. And those of you who've been here before know it. No, I say that. I mean, it's just as I hand the cup or as I take the bread, I have to look at them in the face and just say, there is therefore now. Right now. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Um, it, is not a, it is not a statement that we work towards. It is a statement that empowers us. Therefore, summarizes all the teaching before. The now is it's not will or it can or it might be or I hope, but now. It doesn't say, therefore, there is now no sin to confront. There is therefore now nothing to wrestle with. There is therefore now no times where you will feel confronted by brothers, sisters, or the Spirit in His Word. It says, there's no condemnation. As we think about the walk of the Spirit, I've given you a couple of uh, different illustrations to think about it. One is a coach. Who would ever hire a coach that's not going to correct? Now, who would ever hire a coach that's not going to, you're paying all this money, teach a kid how to swing a piece of wood and hit a ball, and that coach isn't going to tell them they're doing something wrong? Or a voice coach. What kind of teacher would you get that says, well, I don't ever want to mark anything wrong? Give up then. Right? We're walking in the Spirit. The Spirit is going to convict of sin. It's going to be the loving Father that is beautifying His creation. The creation glorified by the work of the Spirit gently and over time and using brothers and sisters pointing out sin and fallenness. 
What do you do with that declaration? I'm telling you, it is the declaration that empowers the walk. The walk is not a system or steps in order to receive the declaration. The walk is empowered by that declaration. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the father says. It is in him we receive this declaration. And if we, the people of God, directed by the Bible and his spirit, we have to see this. If we're going to grow as people, as a body, then we have to realize that his confrontation and correction, it doesn't jeopardize our standing. No, it's really the proof of it. The writer to Hebrews says, if it doesn't happen, if you're not confronted, if you're not disciplined, then you're an illegitimate child. But on both sides of this text, and we'll, get to, we'll get to verse 38 and 39 and who knows how long, but, but when he gets through with all this, listen to this beautiful conclusion. Verse 38 of Romans 8. I'm sure, I'm sure, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian walk, the walk by the Spirit, is lived under the power of that declaration. Do you believe it? It is yours in Christ. You glorify our God when you grab hold of it and say, it is not even, it's not even by me holding on. It is your holding on to me and saying, you're not condemned. Accept and receive complete work of my son. Uh, I said, secondly, it's a walk with clear explanation. Um, why is it so? How does it happen? Why am I declared righteous? Well, verse 2 and 3, it says, for or because or since, in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life, this, this law of the spirit of life has set you free. He's moved from himself and his wrestling to them. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God's done with the law. We can by the flesh could not do. That's chapter 7. He did it by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, our small group, sometimes we watch movies, and I'm 0 for 2, according to some, uh, and my movie choices have been revoked um, because the last one made everybody cry. Uh, but uh, if you've not seen the movie The Mission, grab yourself a bunch of Kleenexes and, and go watch The Mission. It's an old, old movie. It won the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it's an amazing film. I still stand by it. It was a good decision. And if it made them cry, good for them. Uh, but there's a scene in the mission. It's about a slave trader who is converted by a Jesuit priest. There's a slave trader, a very violent man. And, and as, as he is set up as a character, there is a scene uh, where someone laughs at him. And he's like, you laughed at me? And his pride and his hubris, just, it's exuding out of who he is. You laughed at me? And then he loses his wife to his brother. What could be more humiliating to a proud man? Resulting in him killing his brother. And he falls into this pit of despair. He falls into a Romans chapter 7. A wretched man. The priest finds him huddled in this mission huddled wanting to die and he asked the priest a question do you think redemption is possible is there any way for me to be redeemed now again it's roman catholic theology 
but there's a beautiful picture of it. What happens is the priest says, if you're willing to try, the next thing we see, now, now this guy has murdered and enslaved the native peoples of Brazil. The next scene you see is him going to the mission. This mission, and I can't tell you the whole movie, but he's going towards this mission. And there is Robert De Niro as this slave trader, and he has a big rope around him, and there's a, there's a big like net that is full of all the instruments of his previous life. There's armor, there's swords, there's daggers. There's all that gave him pride and security. All that was used to hurt and destroy human beings. He is climbing up these falls. The other monks are with him and they're looking at him and they're just like, what's going on here? And he is climbing and he is climbing, dragging along this weight. There's one scene where uh, it's Liam Neeson, actually a young Liam Neeson. Uh, He sees it and he's overwhelmed. He's like, this is too much, this is too much, too much. And he goes and he cuts the rope. And the stuff tumbles down the falls. And Robert De Niro just looks at it. He walks back down and he ties it back up. But the powerful scene is when he gets to the top. He gets to the top and he he meets these Indians that have been evangelized, these native people that have been evangelized. He he meets them, and one of them is about like this tall, just comes to his face and just starts laughing at him. Just laughing at him. And Robert De Niro just breaks down and he is just sobbing. Now people who watch it say, does does, does that person know that he was a slave trader, that he might have killed this person, he might have made these kids orphans? Do they know this? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But he's laughing at him, and then the native cuts it and throws it off the cliff. I'm telling you, I love the movie just for that scene. Because that's that's what living by the law will do. And our Savior has rescued us from that curse. And all our righteousness, all that we would hold on to, it, it, it is just like that, that, that big bundle of pride and arrogance and accumulated goods. And he cuts it. And then what happens, of course, is just, it's just spectacular. This man from inside out is changed. In these beautiful scenes where the little native girls are putting flowers in his hair. His heart has been changed. His burden has been removed. An apostle is saying that for you. There's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because God set us free through the work of His Son. He set us free. He tied that big thing to His Son, and He put His Son on the cross, and it was God's purpose to crush Him on our behalf. How foolish it is for a Christian to go back down the falls and tie that bond back onto us we've been freed it's a clear explanation God takes the initiative I'm going to run through it quickly he, he says these uh, these three things here four four things in, in chapter in verse 2 and 3 he said God sent his son right God rescues God has the initiative it is his will to do so he sent his son Right? John 3.16, he loved us so he sent his only 
begotten son not when we were good not when we were worthy what does romans 5 8 say but while we were still sinners he dies for us he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh this is the incarnation uh, the, the understanding of fully man and fully God in theological circles is of utmost importance, not just for theologians and preachers, but for the Christian to understand. And so he says it here, in, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He is saying God sent his son, but it wasn't just God sent his son and he, he had all these immunities because he was God's son. No, he was in the likeness in every way like we were, yet without sin. Why? so that he could be a sin offering. God sent his son in the likeness of human flesh to be a sin offering. Leviticus gives this this, uh, insurmountable text of how we are made right, how we are washed, and how we are cleansed. But one thing that goes through it all the way through is, is is the beauty of the system. God will, by faith, allow someone else to take the punishment. He had to be sinless. He had to offer himself freely. And, and God, the Father, had to accept it. And our sin was against him. And so God had every right to say to be made right to me. This is what it requires. And I will accept him. You know the first sin offering in the Bible? Cain. Cain and Abel flesh, the spirit. Cain brought to God what he thought would work. I know, again, some of you think these Presbyterians, they take their worship, their liturgy, their order, you know, so, so they're just kind of, oh, they're just kind of so strict about it. Part of it is because our God warns us. (laughs) Don't worship me the way you want. Don't worship me the way other people worship their gods. I will show you how to worship me. Did you see any image? Do you want an image? No. Worship me as I direct. The very first, first unlawful sin offering was Cain. I'm going to do it my way. I'm bringing what I have done. Right? And, and it's what causes that rift. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 12 give us really the prophecy of what our Savior would do. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He is talking about his own son. Out of the anguish of his soul, in verse 11, he will see and be satisfied. There's no condemnation. He has seen and he is satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion among the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ came in the flesh to be a sin offering, and fourthly, to condemn sin in sinful man. The Christian walk, it is secured by this powerful declaration, and it is fueled by the greatest of expectations. 
We're just going to race through verse 4 here. But listen to what he is saying. Here's what, here is why we're not condemned, and here is where we are going. You think about this, the, the, the contrast between the wretched man that I am, I'm uh, not doing the things that I want to do, to verse 4. In order that, there's purpose behind it, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you get that? The law of God is fulfilled in us. It has lost its power to condemn, but it is fulfilled in us. God didn't decide it doesn't matter. No, it mattered so much that someone had to come and fulfill it for us. Our card has been filled by another in order that every requirement of God's law will be fully met in us. Right? That's why in 1 John, when it says that we're faithful and just, he will forgive our sins. It doesn't say if God is faithful and merciful, he is just. It is God's justice that a Christian cries out to. God, be just to me. I have been justified. I have been declared righteous. I cry out to your justice. You have punished your own son on my behalf. He has taken the punishment for me in your justice. I will not be punished again. Oh, I will be disciplined, right? I'll be guided. But the punishment of sin has been weighed out upon him. And there are three, three things I want to say quickly about this. Here's the great expectation. Number one is holiness. Christian, you're going to be made holy. Now, I know you tend to think of holiness as like, oh, that's just so boring. It's not fun. We don't get to do all those fun things. Oh, it's just such a lie of the evil one. It's the evil one saying, forget this beautiful garden with the rivers. Forget walking with God. Take a look at this apple, right? That's what it is. And holiness for us. Oh, man, I, I wish I, I could go on forever, but I won't. But we think about what people do in order to feel right and holy. Right? I mean, people get tattoos. I'm not against tattoos, but they do all kinds of stuff to their person. I, I want to look better. I want to be better. I want to, I, there's something longing in me to be something greater. And here he's saying, you will become the creature glorified because you're not condemned anymore. You're walking by the Spirit and God is making you into something wonderful and we will be holy. How wonderful is that? I think I was talking to Scotty this week about the catechisms and Children's Catechism, what were Adam and Eve like when God made them? Right? Everybody knows your children's catechism. What was, God, what was Adam and Eve like when God made them? And the answer is they were holy and happy. And I've told you this, my son Luke used to always say, and dancing. What were we like when God made us? What were we like in the garden? We were holy, pure, complete, unadulterated by sin and its infection and temptation, and we were happy. And you better believe it, we were dancing. And that is where God is taking us, his people. Uh, it is the fulfilling of God's law, and it is according to his spirit. We'll do more of that in the coming weeks. I want to conclude by just pointing out, here you have just another passage of the Trinity at work. Right, The Father sins. He sends his son whom he loves, his only son. He sends his son whom he loves to redeem a people who he has chosen to love. The son takes on the likeness 
of sinful flesh. He becomes the Passover lamb. He fulfills all the law of God. Uh, look at Matthew's gospel. Matthew just makes it a point of just saying, in order that this was fulfilled, in order that the law was fulfilled, he's pointing it out to the Jewish reader. All that Leviticus pointed to, all that the law pointed to, he did it, he fulfilled it, in order that it would be fulfilled, in order that he would be the right sacrifice. The son takes on and he does what none of us could do and that we are and were weakened by the sinful flesh. And then the spirit that he'll call the spirit of life applies that to our hearts and our minds. It reminds us constantly that the work of Christ is sufficient. Uh, it's interesting, my friend that was at um, Life at Lake Center Baptist, Caleb, this morning, and I, this morning as I was walking and praying for him and his church, now somewhere south of Bixby, um, he's like, what are you preaching on? I'm like, oh, I got Romans 8, 1, 1 through 4. It's like, what you live for as a preacher? And he says, oh, but I got John 19. I get to preach on it is finished. And I'm like, oh, touche. <laughs> Pretty awesome. The Trinity at work and completed. Brothers and sisters, the Christian walk it is secured by this powerful declaration. And it can be yours today. If you're unsure of where you stand with God, it, it, it is profound and yet it is simple. You are either in yourself, which may be a religious self, maybe a good and moral self. You're either in yourself and you are risking presenting that to the holy God and creator, or you are in Christ Jesus. You have abandoned all the, the hope of making yourself right. And you have surrendered, not invited him in, you have surrendered all of your being and self to him. And you have thrown your lot in with him. If that does not describe you this morning, I, I, I would ask you to consider what is being in Mark or Dave or Sally it's always insecure. It can be robbed. It can be stolen. You can be lied about. The reputation can be messed up. It, compare what you are in now to what you really want, what you really long for. Is it possible to be known and loved? That, that, that desire that I have to be better than I am is it possible that that desire was actually put in me as a created being in order to drive me to Christ Jesus? I would say yes. Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, would you set apart these elements now for holy use and all who approach this table Father, that, that there would be just this beautiful picture of you glorifying yourself in us. The wretched men and women that we are, the wrestling of sins, that we would lay that down and we would take a hold of Christ. And we would say, no, not, not, not for me. My sins have been paid for by another. I will not dishonor my Savior by allowing them to define me, to rule me, for I am in Christ, and I have been declared right in God's sight. 
Oh, Father, thank you for these truths. Will you, through this sacrament, remind and still and sear into our very minds and hearts the wonderful truth of when Jesus said it is finished. Ah, how freeing that can be for us. We pray it would be so for us, Lord, that your name might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.